Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motor Studio, here's Steve Jones. Great to have you with us on the show today. Brought to you by our good friends at Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in beautiful downtown Hummel's Wharf, where the suit could be king. Sean and I think so. He could. Play-by-play call of the day. Scooter Gannett. Going to tighten up those batting gloves. A little dirt on the hands. Big deep breath coming up. And let her rip. Brenneman with the call on the uh, Reds TV network. What a great night. Five for five, four home runs. Ten knocked in for Scooter. All right. Book is out about the Boston Olympics. He guy that wrote it is now the head of the Department of Transportation for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Name is Chris Dempsey. Chris, while I want to sit there and talk about a couple of things dealing with 128, the Ted Williams Tunnel, and the Sagamore Bridge, I guess we'll get into other things. I welcome you to the show. Appreciate that. Sounds like you're very familiar with some of the infrastructure we uh, have here in Boston. Uh, I, grew, I grew up, in fact, my, my grandparents uh, uh, were in Lexington, and I've got relatives in Bill Ricca. Uh, I want to get to this. I want to start with this. They put together a budget to operate of $7.5 million. The opposition saying, hey, no Boston Olympics. Yours was 30000 What made yours so effective as to how you went about your business to get the message out that maybe this wasn't the right way to go? Well, as you say, we were up against some very powerful and wealthy people. In fact, if you look at the list of Boston Magazine's 10 most powerful people in Boston, six of them were on board with Boston 2024 and pushing the idea of the Olympics. And on our side, we were kind of a scrappy bunch of people, mostly in their 20s and 30s, uh, and then some older who were really asking some tough questions about the bid. And I think the difference here is that we had the facts on our side. If you look at the history of Olympic Games in other cities, and if you look at the bid that Boston 2024 put together, you started to realize that this was just not a good idea for our city, that it was going to put our city's bright future at risk. And, you know, because we had those facts on our side, we were able to get the message out there, and people, were, people, regular citizens who were deciding on whether this was good for them or not, eventually came to our side. I mean, you look at the other side, though. John Fish, everyone knows Robert Kraft. Marty Walsh, Jim Davis, John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox, Liverpool, Boston Globe. That's on the other side. But Kraft is an interesting person to have on that side. And I understand why, as a powerful man, he would be there. But here's a guy who built Gillette himself, and all he asked the state for was $72 million in infrastructure. And Finneran, I think, who was the Speaker of the House at the time, said no. Now, it's an interesting turnaround to see how people felt about 2024 Boston. 
Yeah, you know, I think Bob Kraft is, is, is an interesting player in this. He's someone that's obviously very well respected in Massachusetts because of the success that the Patriots have had. Um, and I think he was actually interested in this originally because it could have meant a stadium for his soccer team, which is the New England Revolution, the right. MLS team in right. downtown Boston. But what happened over time is that it became clear that the Olympic Stadium would actually be a very poor fit for MLS because the Olympic Stadium is 60,000 people and it's built in a bowl shape because you need to put that big track in the middle. Yep. Whereas the soccer stadiums, they want them to be twenty to 30,000 people and they want them really, really tight so the fans are really close to the players. So once it became clear that this was never going to be a way to build a soccer stadium downtown, Kraft sort of over time started to drop out and eventually he really distanced himself from the a bit, especially when it became clear that it was a political loser. Chris, this, the contracts in the bidding are structured in an interesting way. It, it seems like they're all structured to balance toward what the IOC gets out of it and not so much the city. Is that a fair statement on my part? It, yeah, that's exactly right. The way people should think about Olympic bidding is it's like an auction, and the IOC is the auctioneer, and they're trying to get as many cities as possible into the auction room and to bid up that price. And so when they've got a bunch of cities saying, we want the games, we're willing to do anything it takes to bring the games to our city, the IOC can extract pretty outrageous demands from these bidders. And the one that's most important is the taxpayer guarantee. The IOC actually requires the mayor of the host city to sign a contract that says the city taxpayers will be responsible for any cost overruns. And that's why one reason we've seen enormous cost overruns in all these other Olympic Games. You're talking about London, for example, in 2012, where they had a $10 billion cost overrun. And it was the UK taxpayers that had to pick up the tab for that. We didn't want the same thing to happen in Massachusetts. All right, so I want to take that forward for a moment, Chris, and follow up on that. Uh, If it had played out in a certain way, how long would would the taxpayers of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts pay for the Olympics once the games were actually over? How many years would it have taken to pay the bill potentially? Sure. Well, you look at Montreal, which hosted the 1976 games, and they were 10 times over budget. They were still paying off the debt for the Olympics 30 years later, long after the Olympics had left town. And that's really the fundamental dynamic or equation here is the Olympics are really fun for three weeks. And we'd even admit that the Olympics would have been fun for three weeks. Mm -hmm. But you've got seven years of construction leading up to it. And then you build all these venues that you use for three weeks, and you're left with these empty venues that you don't. 30 years or more of debt. In this case, it actually would have been taken longer because they were also asking not just for debt, but also for tax incentives that would have been 40 or 50 years. So uh, these are these are costs that city of Boston taxpayers would have had to deal with for decades, for generations, all for you know a couple weeks of fun in the year 2024. The secrecy of the bids. Now, I, I, you know, I understand the secrecy, you know, only because you're asking cities to to bid on this. But eventually, numbers have to come out. So, when you're asking the taxpayer to pl- pay something that's blind, how difficult a proposition is that to now sell to taxpayers in today's environment? Well, thankfully, it's getting harder. And what you've seen is cities around the world have started to say that they have much more important priorities than the Olympics. You know, since Boston dropped its bid in 2015, 
Hamburg, Germany, Rome, Italy, and Budapest, Hungary have all dropped their bids for the 2024 games. And they've all pointed to Boston and said, you know what, Boston got it right. We just don't want to be in this, in this auction, in this race anymore. But yeah, you know, fortunately, we live in a democracy where we were able to force Boston 2024 and the people behind it to eventually share the information that was in the bid. You don't see that in more of these, you know, centrally planned totalitarian governments. Um, and that's why you're seeing places like Russia and China uh, be the places that the IOC sends the game. You know, in, their, in, in places like that, you don't have democracy. You don't have uh, a battle of ideas back and forth. And so the IOC is much happier because the powerful people can just do what they want to do, even if it comes at the expense of regular people. Well, you and I both know that when Vladimir Putin put in the uh, bid for Sochi, he also put in the bid at the time that oil was running $104, $105 a barrel, which is the primary export in Russia, yep. and now that's it's right. down to 47 So, I mean, you know, and that's why, you know, that's why they, you know, they lost their shirt on, on, on Sochi. Yeah, they spent $50 billion yeah. on the Sochi Olympics, and they, you know, they don't really have much to show for it other than, again, a couple of weeks on television where Putin looked pretty good. And then you'll remember he actually invaded Ukraine a few weeks after that. That's right. So these are often used as a pretext for some sort of geopolitical game. And look, here in Boston, I mean, we're, we've got a thriving economy. Um, the, the city is growing quickly. We're really lucky to be in that position. And we want to keep that going. We don't want to put that momentum at risk by taking our eye off the ball and instead focusing on this three-week party. I mean, it's more than just this because uh, a lot of evidence, when, once you finally saw the documents, there were many items that were overstated. There's also a planned deficit involved, and they were also going to use eminent domain. Uh, yeah, yep. I'm going to take your property and build a velodrome. Really? Right. You're going to you're going to take my private bill of velodrome. Really? Okay. Yeah, you know, so for for actually more than a year, the boosters said that the games would run a profit, um, or at worst they would break even, and they even claimed that other Olympics in the United States have broken even, which is not true when you actually dig into the details right. there. But the fact is that they went to the public and they said for over a year this can only make a profit. It's you know it's a lead tight. Um, locked up proposition. We don't have to worry about it. But in fact, they had a second set of books that they were keeping private that actually showed that they were expecting a deficit. It's pretty outrageous when you think about it, but it is representative of how the United States Olympic Committee and the International Olympic Committee work. They're used to doing things in private and sort of keeping things quiet and meeting their own goals, even if it comes at the expense of the host cities. You've done a great job in that state with public transportation, and also the big dig once it was finally finished was great in terms of flow of traffic. But Boston, like any big city, is, is tough on a normal day, let alone the Olympics. You had a lot of snow in 2015. T got shut down. And for those who don't know, that's the prime transportation system they use for public transportation. The T being shut down, what kind of example did that set for everybody as to what a potential problem could look like with the Olympics? Yeah, I think it really accelerated the conversation. Uh, and I'm someone that actually takes the tea every single day. So I get on the subway every day to go to work. And I was one of those people in 2015 who was stranded and not able to get to work because the snow essentially shut down the system. I think that, you know, what really happened there is that Bostonians realized that while we do have a great legacy of making strong investments in our public transportation system, that we weren't doing enough. And if we can't even get the basics right, can't even get people to work because it snowed, then 
and we have more fundamental work to do and we again should not be taking our eye off the ball and focused on other things so I think I think that snow was a reminder to people let's double down on the day-to-day basics let's make sure we're getting people to work let's make sure that our schools are functioning well and we're educating the next generation let's invest in open space and parks things that make our city a great place to live on a day-to-day basis let's not be focused on what's going to make the IOC happy you know you think about the people in the IOC it's people like the Princess of Liechtenstein, the Prince of Monaco, the Prince of Malaysia. These are people that could really, you know, they, they're not people like me taking the subway every day, right? They're getting chauffeured around. They have, you know, vast amounts of wealth and power. And they want you to host their three-week party, and then they're off to the next city. Um, so you, what, what they want done to your city, the things that the changes that they want to see are really fundamentally different than what regular people um, in your community want. And that really came out and was very clear in the debate that Boston had. So you're saying they don't live in Framingham. All right. Exactly. Uh, again, the book is No Boston Olympics, How and Why Smart Cities Are Passing on the Torch. Chris Dempsey and Andrew Zimbalist wrote it. Uh, you mentioned Hamburg. When you had a chance to talk with them about, you know, they initially got in, they have excitement. Budapest was the same way. What were some of the common sense things that you talked about that you could tell right away that they understood? Yeah, so this was pretty cool for us. You know, we fought the bid in Boston. It ended in July of 2015. And then in October of 2015, we got invited by some people in Hamburg to go over to Hamburg and actually talk with them about the bid in their city. And there were a lot of similarities. Hamburg has a strong economy. It's this northern port town that has converted to sort of the tech economy and the knowledge economy. And... As we looked and compared the bids, it, you know, it, it, they, it was sort of the same sort of situation, the same setup. Um, and, and we saw that the boosters in Hamburg were hiding some of the information, not being honest with the costs, and were ultimately going to be very reliant on a huge subsidy from Hamburg taxpayers. Right. And so we had that conversation with them, and about a month later, it turns out that they had a referendum on the bid, and the people of Hamburg voted down the bid. And I think they said that they came to the same conclusion that people in Boston came to, which is... If we're going to use tax dollars on this, if we're going to have our elected officials focused on this, let's get the basics right. Let's do it for the people in our city and not be focused on a three-week event that really is going to benefit the IOC, but not going to benefit those of us who live here. What, what's interesting, I'll have just a couple more questions and I'll let you go, because obviously sure. you've got a lot, a lot of work to do yourself today. Uh, when the Women's World, World Cup in soccer went to Canada, the only other bidder that eventually dropped out was Kazakhstan. When, I think I want to say the Beijing Winter Olympics, the only other bidder was, again, Kazakhstan, backed out. Uh, Are we now seeing a trend where everybody's being a little bit more careful, and what can the IOC, in your opinion, if anything, do to to, uh, reverse that trend, or those who run FIFA, for example, to reverse that trend? Yeah, well, you know, I think that, unfortunately, the IOC is very resistant to change. If you think about the modern Olympics in, in 1896, you know, in Athens, that's when they started their model, and their business model is basically the same today as it was then. And since 1896, we've invented the radio, the television, the Internet, air travel. We're in a totally different world, and the IOC is sort of stuck in that 19th century. Um, I wish that they would change. I mean, I think they should be talking about a permanent location or a small number of – 
permanent locations where they could move the games around and they could build the infrastructure and build the stadiums once and not have to worry about building a new every time they move to a different city. But unfortunately, again, you're talking about literally members of royalty in the IOC and they just don't have a lot of incentive to change as long as they have one or two cities show up every year, they'll be okay. You know, your listeners may be following this because this is going to be breaking over the next couple months, but the IOC is going to award the games in September for 2024. That's the one that Boston was supposed to be a part of, and Rome and Hamburg and Budapest, and they all dropped out. So what's left is Los Angeles and Paris. And it looks like what they're going to do is they're going to give Paris the 2024 games and then at the same time give Los Angeles the 2028 games, which is pretty much unprecedented in their history. But they're so nervous that democracies are no longer interested in this that they're going to try to lock in those two cities while they can and then maybe take some time to figure out how they can make things better. My final question is about the book itself. Give me a, Just give us an idea of what the journey was like for you to write the book and then reliving the slice of history you created. Sure. Well, it was a lot of fun. And my co-author is Andrew Zimbalist, who's a professor at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. This was book number 27 for him <laughs> and book book number one for me. So we had a, some different approaches in that sense. But it was great to collaborate with him. He really brings the intellectual and academic heft, the, the economics behind these games and why they don't make sense. And the perspective that I brought is someone who, who is operating in sort of the political environment and trying to, as a grassroots campaign, sort of work to get people to be more aware of some of the challenges of this bid. And so the the partnership in the book is actually very reflective of the partnership we had over the course of the debate, where we would team up very well and put our arguments together and ultimately produce something that was both politically viable and reasonable, but also had that academic backing that someone like Professor Zimbalist brings. Well, one of the standards I have for a book that's when it's factually based is, did I learn something I didn't know before? This book is filled with that. Chris, thank you so much for the time you gave us today. Appreciate it, and uh, look forward to going to your great state here pretty soon. Great to chat with you. You're always welcome, Massachusetts. I found that to be fascinating. There's a lot to talk about with this. Other than the fact that the suit is on some sort of hotline right now. We'll come back with more in a moment. Uh, News Radio 1070 WKOK. When it comes to car buying, there's the other guy's way, and then there's the SMC way. The other guys force you into a vehicle you really don't want. The Subway Motors way lets you take the time you need to browse, ask questions, and take the test drive and think on it. For over 100 years, the Mirth family and all their employees have made your experience the most pleasant one you'll ever have. The other guys won't offer you the best price for your trade, no matter how much they say they will. The SMC way is their promise to provide you with the most money the market shows your vehicle's worth. The SMC way is to offer you all applicable factory rebates on new vehicles and generous discounts. Looking for a pre-owned vehicle? The SMC Way checks each vehicle in a 200-mile radius to determine the lowest price, then beat it. It's the lowest price promise, just part of the SMC Way. The choice is up to you. The other guy's way or the SMC Way. The SMC Way wins every time. Sunbury Motors Company in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury and at sunburymotors.com. Selling more cars and satisfying more customers for over 100 years. I think this brings about an interesting debate. There is no question that a sports team, a successful one, 
can bring communities together, and a successful one can also, while in bringing communities together emotionally, also can be a fulcrum for businesses doing well in the surrounding area to community. I don't care whether it's hotels, restaurants, whatever it happens to be. And I've talked often about, I've always felt that propositions of an arena, uh, a team, and a city should always be that one-third, one-third, one-third. And I've always said that because, let's take, for example, an NFL team. Say you want to put an NFL team, I don't know, let's pick, pick a city that doesn't have one right now. Uh, well, we'll go with one that just lost one, San Diego. Well, to me, the proper partnership should be, look, the league investing one-third of the stadium costs. Why? Because TV market-wise, they're going to benefit by having it. Also, a place like San Diego would be a place you can host Super Bowls. So the league gets great benefit out of having the market to go with the stadium. The team, it's an obvious proposition as to why they need to put a third in, because they're the ones that will be, be the prime tenant. And then taxpayers. I think the, the benefit to having a stadium or an arena is big because of the businesses that can crop up around it, which would mean more employment. And there's a lot, there's a lot to it. I think that's an, that becomes a, an investment. But that's not how it works today. They want the taxpayers to foot so much of the bill that it's too much. And the Olympics are a perfect example. The IOC writes its contracts in such a way where a lot is put on the city that is putting the bid in, and the return is not worth it. As Chris Dempsey pointed out, I thought it was a great point. He says, look, you know, remember, this is a city that already has Fenway Park and has TD Garden and then down the road has Foxborough with the Patriots. All right? So sports-wise, they have it going. But he said, we'd rather take the money and put it into public parks that benefit more people. And in reality, long-term, he's right. Taking your calls at 800-795-9565. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury, Sunbury Motors Kia. Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Time now for our sports bozo of the day. I realize you're in nobody knows more than I do that when you're doing play-by-play or a game broadcast, you're in an ad-lib situation. Now, we know what Mike Schmidt said about Azdrubal Herrera the other day. And Schmidt said that Odubel Herrera is not the player the Phillies could build around because of the language barrier. Now, he later called Herrera and apologized. The last night, the Red Sox were playing the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. And Masahiro Tanaka was on the mound last night for the Yankees. Well, at one point, they had to send the pitching coach, Larry Rothschild, out. And 
Jerry Remy thought that the additional person with him might have been the trainer. Thus, he was speculating. I wonder if he got hurt because he saw the additional person out there. And he then found out that, it, no, that was actually the translator. Remy did say that pitchers such as Tanaka should, quote, learn baseball language. Now, his comments drew sharp criticism on social media. And eventually, Remy did tweet an apology. I sincerely apologize to those who were offended by my comments during the telecast last night. And uh, in 2013, Major League Baseball did adopt a rule that permitted interpreters to join mound conferences. Now, of course, you know how I feel about mound conferences. (laughs) I think you should get X amount of timeouts during the course of a Major League Baseball game. And that includes the catcher going out or the first baseman coming over, or the shortstop, or the pitching coach. I mean, hockey, you get one timeout. Now, basketball, you get seven of them. But you call a timeout. There are designated stoppages. But that's not the case right now. I mean, that's not the case right now. The case right now is that you're allowed to have, you know, if you have two per inning, then the pitcher has to come out. But you can go out once every inning if you want to talk to the pitcher. And in Major League Baseball, because of the language barrier, if you need an interpreter, an interpreter can go with you. And uh, something Jerry Remy should have realized and should have just bypassed and moved on. Christopher Stone liking the Steve Jones Show page. Thank you so much, Christopher. P- appreciate that. Yeah, and just posted on our Facebook page uh, the official statement that uh, Bob Stoops uh, has released uh, over the past hour. The breaking news of stepping down as head coach of the Sooners. What did he say? Anything intriguing? Uh, Bring it up here. uh, Let's see. Uh, Thank you for a lifetime of memories we shared together. Of 10 conference championships, the 2000 national championships, strong relationships with players and coaches, and the great Oklahoma football fans. Boomer. Uh, After 18 years at Oklahoma, I've decided to step down. I feel the timing is perfect to hand over the reins. The program is in tremendous shape. We have outstanding players and coaches and are poised to make another run at a Big 12 and national championship. Time is now because Lincoln Riley will provide... A seamless transition as the new head coach. I agree with that part. Capitalizing on excellent staff that's already in place and providing familiarity and confidence for our players. Now is simply the ideal time for me and our program to make this transition. Stoops says he did not base his decision on health reasons that have had no incidents that would prevent me from coaching. A high-ranking Oklahoma Athletic Department official told ESPN's Gene Wojciechowski that Stoops' decision was not an overnight revelation. Uh, The source added that Stoops' father, Ron, suffered a heart attack while coaching at the high school level in Ohio. He died later that night, and that Stoops has always had that in the back of his mind. Stoops also said he did not want to be a, a coach that the school had to force out. If you're ever going to do it, this is when you had to do it, the source told ESPN. And he does not expect Stoops to coach again at any level. Hmm. He's going to be 57 on September 9th, so he's 56 right now. The Bible says to everything there is a, re- there is a season 
And a time to every purpose under the heavens, Stoops wrote in his statement. I'm grateful for this season in my life, and I've fulfilled my purpose here at OU. Pat Forty Yahoo Sports says that the announcement had been in works for a while, but it was tentatively set for Friday, but the timetable accelerated. Yeah. Sometimes it accelerates because you think the word's going to get out. I know you're surprised that there's a possibility of leaks. <laughs> See, the further up you go in anything, there are fewer leaks, right? No. <laughs> Just kidding. So, yeah, he's, uh, that's it. He's out. So, yeah, Thad Mata. See, Thad Mata, if it had happened to him being let go at Ohio State in April, I would not have been surprised. Having Thad Mata let go in June surprised me. Bob Stoops. Announcing in January or February, you've been obviously surprised, but I'm really surprised when I see it in June. I was thinking about this going home last night. I was really surprised in such a short period of time you have both the Ohio State and Indiana jobs open. I mean, who expected that in the span of less than a year? I mean, let alone, I mean, let alone a span of three or four years. Uh, oh, co- oh, basketball. For, bas- yeah. for men's basketball coaches, yes. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you're wondering about Archie Miller. Would Archie Miller have made a different decision had both jobs been open at the same time? Now, I should point out that he moved while the getting was good. He was very smart about what he did. Because anybody who really knows college basketball knows that Dayton is in um, a spot where they're not exactly going to. They're, they're not, there's not a lot returning at Dayton, so he picked a great. I mean, his recruiting has been good, but he's he had a hole in it, and because he had a hole in his recruiting, that. He made the move while the iron was hot because a year from now the iron might not be as hot. And he understood that. And the Indiana job came up, he took it. I'm just wondering that if both jobs have been open at the same time, whether he would have taken the Ohio State job instead. We'll never know. We'll never know. Now you got the Oklahoma football job, and Lincoln Riley gets that. Now he's right about the. the uh, continuity and going to Lincoln Riley and the rest of the staff stays intact with one person obviously being hired to take Bob Stoops position with Riley moving up somebody has to then take Riley's spot whether Riley wants to be his own offensive coordinator or just hire another assistant coach that's up to him but there's also that unknown Lincoln Riley as a head coach on paper and on the surface, he's got a lot going for him. But there's a difference between being the CEO and being a coordinator. There's a difference between being the CEO and being a position coach. 
Some handle it with complete and absolute ease. We've watched it over the years. Others that you thought would be slam dunks have not. So we'll just have to see how it plays out. I mean, Stoops took the job at Oklahoma after being the defensive coordinator at Florida. And it worked out perfectly for him. It's also been a case where Stoops has had mixed success in big games, which, of course, at Oklahoma, they expect you to win all of them. This season was a great example. Early in the season, they host Ohio State. Ohio State beat the living daylights out of them. Oklahoma also lost early to Houston. Then, to their credit, bounced back, put together a great run in the Big 12. Then they beat Auburn in the Sugar Bowl. He also had to deal with the Joe Mixon situation. Very interesting. Uh, Chris Dempsey joined us to talk about the Olympics earlier. And uh, he makes great points in there. And again, this is... uh, this this is my issue when it when it comes to that. You can't. The IOC could care less about how much the taxpayers pay in any given area to host the Olympics. The IOC could care less about cost overruns. Now, I'm saying this as somebody who doesn't know anybody in the IOC, but they have never given anyone the impression that they cared about that at all. They've never given anybody the impression that. They think that their event is the event in the history of the world, and you'd be a fool not to want it. Well, it's now 2017, and the Olympics are extremely prestigious, but they bring with it so many issues from building venues to cost overruns to security that it's not as valuable as the IOC thinks it is. There's no doubt the Olympics bring countries in the world together. We're not debating that part of it, about the world coming together for sport, and sport to be a a peaceful venue and advance life. That's not the debate here. The debate is, at what cost do you do this? That's why I've said the IOC should build one summer venue, build one winter venue, maintain or improve all the time with countries paying dues to do it, and then go from there. No need to move it around. There's no need to flee cities, states. No need to do that. Because between the transportation the security, the cost of venues, cost overruns, having so much of the burden placed on on a taxpayer in a democratically run society. 
it's just it's not anybody with common sense knows it's just not worth it you go to beijing the state's going to pay for it you go to russia the state's going to pay for it south korea and japan i don't know that's but we know that they're going to get it and how you know and paris is probably going to get 2024 how are they going to pay for it and has Paris been a secure place as a city in the last four or five years? Paris already has a terrorist problem. What do you do when you bring in something of this magnitude that could... be a target for those who wish to disrupt as they did it with Black September in the in 1972 in Munich. You, I mean, do you want it to happen? Absolutely not. Will the security be uh, intense? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But it does bring with it legitimate questions that need to be asked. You need to ask questions. How does this affect my area for three weeks? How do I pay for it? Will you do anything to help me? No? Okay. What's the long-term economic benefit to having it? I mean, is Atlanta or Salt Lake City had a long-term economic benefit? Remember, the voters of Denver, Colorado had a chance at the 1976 Olympic Games, and they voted no. And Denver was never hurt by not having it. Peter Ubroth turned turned around the Olympic movement economically with his model in 1984 in Los Angeles. Remember, in 2002, Salt Lake City had the Games, and they were in deep financial trouble until Mitt Romney stepped in. Wrap it up in a moment on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Nineteen seventy six Winter Olympics were supposed to be in Denver, and they ended up going to Innsbruck. Denver won the bid, so they win the bid. All right. And they beat out Cyan in Switzerland. They beat uh, Tampere in Finland. And they beat out Vancouver. They picked out a mascot, the whole deal, blah, blah. So they go through and they do all this. But they decided to put it to a vote in Denver. And when they sat down and went through all everything... They put it to the voters of Denver, and they said no. And they officially withdrew after getting the bid. And the Winter Games in Salt Lake City hit with scandal...
and they had to eventually be bailed out. Uh, Romney was able to reorganize the committee, helped to begin fixing the budget, which was $379 million short, and was able to get sponsors to jump back in. They used lobbying. They did get federal government support that people don't realize, over $1.3 billion from the federal government. They'll pay for infrastructure improvements, which is more than double than what Atlanta got. So, I mean, it's, it's, it is a great thing to have, but is it a realistic thing to have? And I say, no, it's not. I mean, if I were doing this show in Boston at the time, I'd have done a series of shows saying, hey, don't want this. Don't want the traffic. Don't want the security. Don't want, and in particular, don't want to pay the tax bill. Don't. But for three and a half weeks, you're going to saddle your children and your grandchildren with a tax bill? I mean, does that mean, is there any common sense to that? Like, the IOC wants to have a sports festival, build your own venue. IOC wants to have a winter sports festival, build your own venue. Invite everybody. Go to it. Bob Stoops retiring today at Oklahoma. Stunning. Stunning. 18 years. 18 years. National championship in 2000. You know, like any any job, I mean, there's a roller coaster to it, but you probably felt that they're in good shape across the board. Lincoln Riley's going to be the new head coach at Oklahoma. So you've had Thad Mata out at Ohio State. Bob Stoops retiring at Oklahoma in the same week. These things do not happen in intercollegiate athletics in June. June is normally a month of stability and in looking forward for every program. Penn State basketball, for example, looking forward to going to the Bahamas in August for their foreign trip. Penn State football going through their June workouts to get ready for the start of training camp at the end of July. This is a time to look forward. This is not a time that you find schools at a Power 5 school looking for coaches. Now, Oklahoma doesn't have to look for a coach. That coach is already on staff in Lincoln Riley. Ohio State is searching for a basketball coach. And the domino effect will be is if they hire another head coach, the the person they hire will have to be replaced at that school. Thus, the domino continues. I thank Chris Dempsey for being on the show today. Greg Wyshynski also on the show as we talk hockey and the Olympics today. Fun day today. The suit is labeled as haters, but the suit does not have to pay the Commonwealth of Massachusetts tax bill either. We're your home for news, sports, weather, and your home for the Phillies. News Radio 1070 WKOK Sunbury.